Hi there, and welcome to Emmanuel. This is our weekly teaching podcast. We hope that it encourages you to live a little bit more every day like Jesus taught us to. God bless you. So what I'd like to do this morning is kind of lay out the context. Because Paul does something very unusual in this section of Scripture. Paul stands on his own authority. This is very unique, and you need to understand this. Normally, Paul is the guy who takes the lowest seat of the table. He makes himself intentionally look bad. In his letters, he describes himself as like one, you know, because of the way that he became an apostle, he, he describes himself as like one abnormally born, uh, like one deformed. He takes the lowest seat of the table, but in the letter to the Galatians, he is in full apostle mode. And I want to explain to you why he does this. Remember, this is Paul, the guy who said, this is a, in First Timothy, uh, second? I'm not sure. Uh, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of acceptance by all. Christ came to save sinners, of which I am the worst. But in this particular passage, he is in full-blown apostle mode, standing on his credentials. And I want to lay the context so you understand why he's doing that, because it's very unique. And then I want to read the passage together and pray. And then I've got three themes that I kind of picked up on. As I've been studying this week, I picked up three themes, and I'd like to, to talk about them with you. Yes, that is grammatically correct. I'd like to talk about them with you this morning. So here's the context. The region of Galatia is a little bit different than the rest of the New Testament books. When you come across the book of Romans, it's written to the church in the city of Rome. When you come across Thessalonians, it's written to the church in the city of Thessalonica. The book of Timothy is written to this guy named Timothy. But Galatians isn't written to a particular town. It's written to a a region. Uh, it's written to a people known as the Gauls. Uh, it's like saying to the people of Nova Scotia rather than to the people of Truro. And these people, they've got a, a mixed background. They come from all kinds of different walks of life. It was a, a melting pot of the Roman Empire. People would flow in from all directions, and they have all kinds of different religious backgrounds. So they've got all kinds of different religious baggage. Every culture throughout all of history has had religions. We tend to think of ourselves as like a relatively irreligious society. I got to tell you, we live in a more religious society than ever before. And here's what I mean. When I use the phrase religion, I'm talking about that system of rules and regulations with some higher uh, priest, priestly, priestess authority who can interpret the rules, who kind of divinely unpacks them, and it's all based on some divine principle out there, making sure that you do things just the right way. It's the rules that you have to follow to make sure that whatever it is that's out there, the divine power, you know, it, it isn't mad at you. It's a system of rules and regulations that tends to bind people up. And with a, and frankly, that's, that's why we live in one of the most religious societies of all time. We have more rules than ever before. And our gods, our cultural values, 
as Nova Scotians, as Canadians, as Westerners in the 21st century. They're more unassailable than any false god at any point in history. We live in a highly religious society just like the Gauls did a couple of thousand years ago. And Paul, sorry, something happened in that region. Into that context came this life-changing message of Jesus Christ about a God who isn't so much about the rules but actually wants to be in relationship. As Tammy taught last week, Galatians is about bringing freedom. And that is, frankly, the core of the gospel message. As Bruxy Cavey puts it, Jesus came to tear down religious systems and establish a relationship with God. Jesus came to redeem me and you, and I realize that's the wrong order, but Jesus came to redeem us and bring us into relationship with God, a system that isn't based on rules, but on principles and family values. And that sounds fantastic, and that is a better way to live, but if you aren't living it, you might not realize that it is much more difficult to live in the freedom of principles than it is in the chains of rules. That sounds backwards. But it is much more disruptive to try and live by principle than to live by rule. Because a rule, it assigns boundaries. You know when you start, you know when you stop. You may not like it, but as long as you fulfill the rule, you know you're good. And rules, they can always be creatively interpreted. There's always a loophole. There's almost always a way to make a rule work to my benefit. And even within a religious system, I can creatively interpret the rules so that I can come out ahead. And we've seen this all down through history. That, that's the core of all the concerns that so many people have about the church. It seems like people live by the rules and constantly manipulate things so that they get a better deal than others. It's much easier to live by rules and much more rewarding to live by rules than it is to live by principles. Because principles, you can't violate. It's the reason why down in the youth area, I, I try and instill a few values, but they all grow out of the principle, don't break community. We used to, if you're a little bit older, if you grew up in the youth ministry, you remember when we used to say that as, don't make Micah mad. <laughs> I thought I made it clear what that meant, but we had to change it. Don't break community. Because as a principle, in community, that means that I have to lay my life down. I have to live sacrificially. I have to live in mutual submission. I have to take the lowest place on the totem pole if community is going to work. And this disruptive news of freedom in Jesus Christ swept into Galatia. And as the early church planters moved on to keep carrying the gospel to all the corners of the known world, people who had embraced this freedom, well, something very predictable happened. There's a, a story in the book of Proverbs. Early on, it's like chapter 2 or 3. The king is up in his tower. And this is going to be a complete 
misquote and paraphrase. I'm going to try and get the core of it right. The king is up in his tower and he calls his son over and says, Son, listen to my wisdom on this matter. Do you see the young man walking down the street? He doesn't even realize it, but up ahead is her house. And the implication is it's some kind of brothel. She's going to leap out. She's going to say all the right things to him. She's going to entice him and trap him and get him ensnared. And his life is going to end in disaster. He's walking headlong into a trap, and he can't even see it. But I can see it from here, because there are predictable patterns. And as the the early church planters moved on, there was a, a predictable pattern that we should have seen coming. Because in behind them came a group of people that we now call the legalizers. I'm sure they didn't call themselves that at the time. That's a terrible branding. They probably called themselves the holiness movement. Or the the restoring things the way they should be people. Because they came in and they started laying out the rules again. No, no, no. Jesus didn't mean you're completely free there. You have to keep by some of the temple rules. You have to keep by some of the temple legislation. You have to keep by some of the traditions of our fathers. And into that situation, a very predictable behavior emerged. Because it is so much easier to live by the rules. People went back to a legalistic system. We know this to be true. Let's even just think about the offering a few moments ago in our life. A religious system says, hey, you need to give an offering. Oh, well, that's going to hurt. How much do I need to give? 10%. Ow! Well, if that's what I need to give so God's not mad at me, okay, here's 10%. Oh, that hurts. Okay, good. You don't need to give any more. Hey, we need some volunteers. No, no, I gave my 10%. Hey, uh, we need, there's somebody in need. There's a guy without a coat. No, no, I already gave my 10%. Somebody else deals with that. Right? That's, that's religion. But the relationship that Jesus died to bring us into says, hey, you know how Jesus bought you back? Yep. He owns you now. You gave your life to him. He gets everything. Yeah, I'm willing to give 10%. No, 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 no. Jesus gets it all. You're a steward of the things he's given you. Ah, that's not what I thought it was. Can I just give 10% and be okay? It is much easier to live by rules than it is to live by principles. And the people, people of Galatia, boy, the rules were easier. And they went back into a legalistic, bound-up situation. And Paul is writing to that context. And he goes full apostle mode. Because there is something that is being attacked by going back to rules. Rules means I don't have to keep community. The very church that Jesus died to establish, the family that Jesus brought together by his sacrifice, right? Like if, if as we read in Hebrews, you are the son of God, you know, you accept Jesus, you are brought into sonship with God, you are God's family, you're God's child. If, if Jesus calls you a brother or a sister, and Jesus calls me a brother, that means we're family. 
The very family that Jesus died to establish is being completely undermined. Because I don't have to live in kind of a family relationship if I can live by rules. Right? It's like Peter did. Hey, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother who really annoys me? He has ruined Christmas nine years in a row. I've forgiven him seven times. Is that enough? No, 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 no. Your family. Not seven times, but 70 times seven times. Which is another way of saying a bajillion. You just keep doing it. You never stop forgiving. You bear with each other. That's what's being attacked by legalizers. And into that, Paul writes this letter, and he goes full apostle mode. We're going to pick up at verse 11. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. And then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God, sorry, I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Sicilia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard this report. The man who for formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Folks, I'd like to pull out three themes that as I've been studying this week, I've, I've kind of picked up on. But before we do that, I'd like to pray. Father, the very last thing any of us need is some talking head at the front of the room moving his mouth. We so desperately need your Holy Spirit in our life. Lord, we are still trying to figure out what it means to follow you, to be people who follow you. We don't have it right. We know that. We're people on the way to you, not people who've arrived. So, Father, this morning, would you do more work in us, we pray. Would you make us look a little bit more like your son? Would you cause us to reflect who you are and your love for people, the lows around us? Lord, don't let us leave today unchanged. Don't let us be the same as when we came in. God, the things that I toss in here, just wipe them from history, I pray. But would your work in our lives last forever, and you get all the glory. Amen. The first theme that I want to pick up on is actually from the entire passage. So I'm not going to put up any particular scripture verse. Jesus 
died to bring you freedom. But not an immature freedom that we tend to think of in our highly Americanized society, in our highly Western society, but a deep freedom. There's a difference. See, we tend to think of freedom as like some kind of catchphrase. We throw it out as a, a catch-all. It's a symbolism, a totem. We like freedom. Oh, what does it mean? I got no idea. It's a, it's, but it's good. But Jesus died to bring you freedom. He died to redeem you into something. He didn't die to, and li- uh, sorry, he didn't live, die, and rise again just to deliver you into nothing. We live in an age where people have been able to be more free than ever before, to do whatever it is that comes along to their heart, to have as few restrictions on them as possible. And what we have discovered is that instead of living more full lives, those people live more empty lives. That path leads to psychosis. Jesus died to bring you a mature type of freedom. He died to bring you, as I said earlier, into the family. To free you from the chains that were preventing you from growing into who God made you to be. God died to bring you into relationship with Him and with your brothers and sisters. That's the first theme. And because we are so accustomed to it, we occasionally act as if that gift is kind of shallow. Jesus didn't just die. He didn't sacrifice so you can wander around doing whatever you want aimlessly. He redeemed you to give you purpose and meaning. And that tendency of slipping back into legalistic frameworks actually keeps you from being who God meant you to be. But it's not that that thing in our society where it's like, well, I know what I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't have to be accountable to anybody. I don't have to sacrifice for anything. Jesus died to make me free. Yes, he did. Free to be who you're supposed to be. Free to be part of a family that is mutually submissive to each other. This is the core of what it means to be family. You give up so that your brother, your sister can receive. Or as we put it in, or as it's put in scripture, and we try and remind ourselves, take up your cross and follow Jesus. I will say weird saying that up here. And follow me. No, not my God. That's a bad idea. And follow Jesus. Jesus died to give you mature freedom. Not individualism. Not to make a false God of your ability to choose whatever you want. But to give you a life of meaning and purpose. The second theme that I picked up on as I was studying this week, and this has actually been a little bit difficult for me because as I've been studying, I've come across all kinds of trivia. There's all kinds of really fascinating trivia around here. But trivia doesn't change lives. If you want to talk Bible trivia, we'll talk later on. But I want to grow together. And so as I've tried to weed through all the stuff I, I learned, 
I want to give you these three things that I think are actually critical core components of growing into being people of Jesus. The older one comes out of verses 13 and 14, and we do have a scripture for that. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my, of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. If you don't know the story of Paul, let me just give it to you in a nutshell. He did not always go by the name Paul. For the majority of his early life, he was known as Saul of Tarsus. Saul was an incredibly accomplished Pharisee. If I graduated near the bottom of my seminary class, Saul graduated at the top at a very pre prestigious school. Saul was invited to guest lecture at my seminary. Saul was incredibly advanced. He, he was discipled by the best of the Pharisees. And he advanced rapidly through the Pharisaical system. He, he climbed the ranks of the religious order. And when we pick up on his life, he is going around having Christians arrested, tortured, and murdered because they're turning their back on Judaism. There's heresy in the family. We need to root it out and kill it with Saul's mentality. And he was doing it in the name of Jesus. Or not Jesus, God, sorry. Boy, he was not doing it in the name of Jesus. That is exactly wrong. He was doing it in the name of God. He was making sure that moms and dads didn't go home to their children in the name of God. He was incredibly zealous, passionate, committed to the cause that he believed he was called to. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that strong emotions don't necessarily reflect God's plan. Saul was wrong. Jesus got a hold of him on the Damascus Road, which a few years ago I actually got to stand on. It's a highway to Damascus built on the, the original path. And then the guy said, you can't go any farther. That's Syria down there. They're bombing it. Okay. <laughs> Jesus got a hold of Saul on the Damascus Road, took him off one path and put him on another. And his life was so radically transformed, he, he literally took on a new identity to symbolize. He wasn't trying to hide. He was trying to symbolize, I am a different man now. And that, when Paul later writes, the old man has died, that gives new context and flavor. Because Saul died, and Paul chased after Jesus for the rest of his life. In the letter to the Galatians, he writes, Don't you know how zealous I was, how passionate I was about doing the traditions of my forefathers that he thought was the way of God? Strong emotions do not necessarily indicate God's plan. We live in a culture that actually says the opposite. Find your passion and run hard after it. 
How many times, though, have we seen lives wrecked because of that? I was reading this morning. One of my friends put up a blog post. They were offered this position. It looked incredibly great. But their friends around them were like, this doesn't seem to be wise. This is going to be a problem. And they threw away what they'd been building for years and chased because they just felt so strongly that this is what they should be doing. And now a little bit later, they're sharing about how much they threw away and how much of a mistake it was. They, they felt strongly and they believed that they were hearing God, but they were listening to their own heartbeat. I don't know how many times over the years I have hurt people because of my strong emotions. I just knew I was right. And I don't mean like, I don't know because I didn't count. I don't know because I am heartbroken by how many it was. Strong emotions do not necessarily reflect God's will for your life. To determine God's will in your life I recently learned of a, a three-step process. Don't we like three steps? Makes things easy. I love this. I'll tell you who I stole it from in a second. Step one is actually hearing God. We Christians, we think, okay, that's the entire thing. Once I know God's calling, perfect. I'm just going to go out and execute on it. I'm going to be obedient. That's actually the, the easiest part. That's the only part, in fact, that you do by yourself. Hearing from God is only one part. Step two is discerning it within community. Taking it to Christian brothers and sisters, people you know who pray and fast and, frankly, might even traditionally disagree with you, to pray about it and discern it together. Step three is figuring out God's timing. Because the right thing done at the wrong time is still wrong. Figuring out God's plan for our lives is a little bit complicated, but I love how distilled that three-step plan is, and I stole it from a man named Harry Gardner. Some of you know Harry. Reverend Dr. Harry Gardner is the principal of Acadia Seminary. He came after I left. It's not his fault. And he's going to be our guest speaker on March 4th. I had to stop and remember for a second which day it was. I'm still looking forward to hearing from Harry. Uh, I mentioned earlier that Paul goes full apostle mode. Uh, to be an apostle means that you were one of these people that were taught directly by Jesus. Right? You, you sat face to face with Jesus. Peter was an apostle because Jesus... Listen, Peter. That's what an apostle is. But there is such a thing as an apostolic gifting. And those are people who just seem to be... God is called to have influence over multiple churches. Harry Gardner has an apostolic gifting. I'm looking forward to hearing from him on March 4th. But that's his three-step plan. And that three-step plan helps us overcome the blindness that we get into when we start being really zealous about something. Because when we start getting zealous, when we start getting highly emotional, we start getting blind. I do. I assume you're like me. My emotions blind me 
to the things that God might be trying to teach me. The third thing that I wanted to pick up on is that God does surprising things. There's a part A and a part B to this. Part A is that God keeps doing surprising things. Take a look at verses 23 and 24. They only heard the report, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Can you think of a less likely person to become an apostle of Jesus Christ than the guy who made sure that the early Christians didn't go home to their kids? Seriously. Can you think of a less likely person? And Paul was used by the Holy Spirit to write like a third of the New Testament. God does surprising things. He works in ways we have no idea he's about to. How did he win the biggest victory of all time? By getting nailed to a cross. How did he redeem one of the most corrupt societies of all time? By sending a prophet on a boat called a whale. Fish, whatever. God does surprising things all the time. He is in the habit of snatching victory from defeat. In fact, usually victory is taken through defeat. He's in the habit of bringing life from death and joy from ash. God does surprising things. And if in your life, things are burning down around your head, and as I've walked with many of you, I know how hard some days are. If things are falling down around your head and things are burning down around you, do not give up because our God is a God who keeps doing surprising things. And here's part B. That requires faithfulness on our part. That requires faithfulness on our part. When I was a kid in Sunday school, they never taught us how long it was between when Saul met Jesus and when Paul became the man that we know him as today. As a kid, I was just like, oh, well, it must have been like two weeks later. That seems like a long time. He must have like walked back. It took a little while, and they had to set up a meeting, and they had a supper, and that's when, when Saul said, call me Paul. It was a long time. It wasn't two weeks. It wasn't two months. It wasn't two years. This letter was written a couple of years into Paul's first missionary journey. He has three that we know of. And all indications are that it is written about, give or take, 20 years after his conversion, after he met Jesus. That's like 17 years before Jesus start, or before, yeah, before Jesus called Paul to start his work. That is a lot of faithfulness. That is faith like a mustard seed. Believing that God is going to, in the right season, cause it to grow. God is in the habit of doing surprising things. So don't give up and stay faithful because he's not through with you yet. It is my profound belief that God is not done with us yet. 
both individually and as a family. He's in the habit of doing remarkably surprising things. So this morning, I kind of wanted to leave you with a couple of questions growing out of these themes. This theme that God has actually saved you, redeemed you, purchased you for a purpose. He's brought you freedom for a reason. What is it? What is it? And not just what do you feel passionate about, but what has brothers and sisters around you affirmed? What's the right timing? Where is it that because of the rules and regulations that you've kind of put on yourself, you're not growing into the part of the family that God's called you to be? Where is it that you actually need to check your heart a little bit? Because you are absolutely 100% convinced that you are right. And yet people are still getting hurt around you. It might be at work. It might be in the way that you parent. It might be in the way that you're a neighbor. Where is it that your zeal has blinded you to the call of God in your life? Maybe it's nowhere. It's just a good question to ask yourself. One of my favorite things I learned in my undergrad came from a prof who wasn't in a religious studies class. It wasn't in a biblical studies class. It was just an offhanded comment. He said to the entire class, every morning you should look in the mirror and thinking about the thing you believe most strongly, say, have you ever considered you might be wrong? And finally, where is it that you need to stay faithful and believe that God can still do surprising things? You're not trusting in some bailout package. You're not trusting in some employer to come along. You're trusting in Christ alone. Where is it that you need to renew your faith that God can still do amazing and surprising things and catch you by surprise and bring life where you thought there was going to be death and joy where there seems to be nothing but ash and victory where you thought you were defeated? I don't think that we usually understand the scripture that says, in our weakness, he is strong. I think that sometimes we forget that in those areas where we are most weak and the most without hope is where God can do the most amazing things. So this morning, as we close in worship, and I'm going to invite the band up to, to lead us, as we close in worship, I want to challenge us again. I want to pray again that God would renew our faith in Him. That He would still do amazing things. That we would still grow in ways that we never saw. And throw off rules and re regulations that have nothing to do with the Spirit of God. That He would make us more of a family than ever before. So would you join me in prayer? God, we can't do any of this without you. It's not by our strength. It's not by our ability. 
It's only because of who you are that we can have faith that you're not done with us, that you haven't given up on us, that you are still at work in the areas that we think are most black and bleak. Lord, for my friends here who are going through hard days, for my friends who are not sure what the next days are going to look like, would you renew our faith in you, we pray this morning. Amen.